Hey guys, this is the Bob Lowe Show here. Um, the show is basically I want to get like the best uh, marketing people around the world. And uh, today we have Abby, uh, who is now in Portland, and she's a consultant when it comes to marketing in Japan. So what she does is that I, how I understand is she takes products from the U.S. or from anywhere in the world, and she will bridge the cultural gaps and marketing in Japan. So Abby, um, can you tell us uh, uh, more about what you do? Yeah, so basically anything that has to do with crossing between the Japanese and English divide. So um, I deal with what's called localization of marketing materials. And that spans anything from like the linguistic divide to the visual um, aspects of it as well. And also, I mean, another thing that I sort of do that I don't talk about too much is advising on how to deal with um, negotiations because this is all part of the cross-cultural communication issues where the negotiation tactics are also different and the way relationships are built and how business is done is different too. So anything that has to do with um, bridging that gap is um, between Japanese and English speakers is basically where that's the space that I work in. Amazing, uh, amazing stuff, Abby. Um, how did you uh, become, uh, how did you qualify or how did you become into this role? Did you have a background in Japanese or something? Yeah, so, um, well, first of all, I grew up in Japan in an English-speaking household. So I grew up um, n knowing both Japanese and English um, as a bilingual, but also like in my house because my mom's American, although she's a specialist of Japanese studies, but she's still she's still from the states, and my dad is Japanese. So I grew up like constantly having to sort of help them, like figure out what was going on with each other. Sometimes they got along really well, so I mean they still do. So I didn't really have to like be a mediator so much, but there would sometimes be these moments of misunderstanding because you know even if you love the other person, you still misunderstand things, and sometimes there's a cultural reason for that and so I grew up seeing that and then I like I grew up in Japan but then I crossed over to an English-speaking educational system and had to suffer through that of <laughs> adjusting to a completely different educational system and also just a completely different culture because things just operated completely differently um, but I was also um, I have a PhD in Japanese and Korean studies and so I was studying my native culture and also a closely related but a different culture, right, Korean, um, as a specialist. So I, I learned, I acquired all the book knowledge and sort of my understanding of how um, foreigners see Japan and Korea while, figure, like, while being able to put that together with my own experience growing up there and being a close observer of it. So I kind of have this like very, um, that's kind of my qualifications is that you know, I know as a scholar and a specialist, and I also have the direct experience. And of course, you know, I still have a life there as well, as in I have my friends and family. So um, I kind of have a multidimensional view of Japan. And also I'm able to segment the markets in a very sort of specialized kind of way because of that. Great stuff. Um, I, I myself can identify with you because uh, I've done a lot of translations because uh, I'm, I'm residing in Kuala Lumpur and in Kuala Lumpur we have 
basically three main languages. Uh, mm-hmm. We have I have a good understanding of English, and I uh, I have a basic level of Chinese language, and I also can do Malay. So what I find is that sometimes certain words in English don't exist in the other language. Can't get the equivalent, but can get something similar, but it's not how they actually say things. Um, can you give us an example of something, uh, maybe a tagline or a, a brand name uh, that was translated from English, but it, the, the translation to Japanese was something very unique? Mm-hmm. So, oh, wow, let me think about that. It's just um, what I notice a lot in the localization process. So with marketing material, it's especially interesting i think because um the word-to-word correspondence often doesn't evoke the same emotion in the target audience Mm. and that's one of the things that makes tagline and copy adaptation into japanese like particularly difficult um and that has to do with the cultural gap right like um you know, translation into into and from any language is difficult, and any translator will tell you that. But um, there are certain languages that translate, you know, better into others than like between like English and Japanese or English and Korean, where they share so little culturally that the same words don't have the same meaning um, at all. And so you just have to use a completely different word if you were are still targeting the same mark the same segment and um, and you also have to use different color schemes. So one of the things that I see a lot happening is that um, brands in the US that want to be youthful and I can't mention specific names, but there is a brand that I um, did the, um, I did a bunch of taglines for um, and, and also like worked on captioning their, streaming their videos too but they one of the things they didn't do is they didn't adapt the visuals and the visuals that they used happened to be very heavy on primary colors very bright because i think they wanted to you know in the american market what that signals is like youthfulness and pop right but the thing is in the japanese market it looks loud you know big primary colors are only used very sparingly as accent colors and the tone is generally like much quieter and another thing about digital marketing the difference between um like website designs in the japanese in the american sphere is that the japanese websites tend to be a lot um well it depends on it depends on the industry the cheaper ones tend to be very like busy and like detailed and like loud colors but the higher end ones tend to be very, very toned down in terms of color. And so there's a struggle in the digital marketing world in Japan that's trying to emulate more the American style of like being clear, of being toned down and not as contrast heavy, and yet like still being toned down in color because a lot of Japanese websites, like it's actually difficult to read because they don't like using contrasting colors and they like to use these very like soft colors it makes it very difficult to read, but that's what's preferred. And so there, there's the struggle for that. But what certainly doesn't work is the American style, like just bright colors everywhere to make everything stand out, right? Like to pop out. You have to be much more careful. So 
I'm not coming up with like a specific word equivalent, um, but like just visually, those are the things that you kind of have to be careful about um, between the specifically American and Japanese um, correspondence and localization of visual cues. Nice. Um, one of my best friends here in, uh, in Kuala Lumpur here in Asia is actually Japanese. He sort of owns um, a SEO agency here, and he talks to me about e-commerce. I said, um, he's been in Malaysia for past three years already, and he said the main difference between uh, marketing and e-commerce, in, even in Malaysia and Japan, is mm -hmm. in Japan, it's very text-heavy. People will actually read the descriptions, the yes. pictures, where in, in Malaysia, we don't read so much. It's all about the, the photos and the huh. price. Uh, this just has to be loud, and the photo has been nice, and that's that's all we need. But in Japan, it's that people will actually take the time to go through all the copy in the website. So and that's it's true. Yeah, it's very true. It's very true. And you had any um, any experiences when an American brand goes into Japan and they have to increase their number of text? They should do it, but they don't. And <laughs> I mean, and this is why, like, the thing is, I used to work a lot through agencies, and I still do. Yeah. But one of the reasons why, um, so for me, LinkedIn is a space of, like, pivoting to going from, like, basically just an outside vendor for agencies to trying to gain more direct clients. And the reason why I wanted to do that was that, you know, not all agencies are the same. Um, and I do have certain agencies that I love working with, and when people ask me for multiple language things, I refer them to those agencies, right? But, um, but there are certain agencies where there was an agency that particularly sent me a lot of not just um, transcreations and translations, but also cultural consultation pieces. And that's where I got my experience in cultural consultation. Less, le I mean, not so much through direct clients, but more through this particular agency. But I got really frustrated because they wouldn't let me give all the advice that I can give. Um, and I would be, I would get this, you know, thing where they asked me to like review stuff and then write up a report on it. And I'll write up the report, but there was like, so there were so many pieces to the report that are missing that I couldn't really encase in it. So I would like, you know, turn this thing in where it was like very limited. Um, and they won't let me get in touch with the end clients because, you know, for them, they want to like keep that pipeline straight. And I just thought, you know, this is very frustrating because if I could actually talk to the end clients myself, I can tell them exactly what needs to get done. Right. I mean, and there's no one right answer, but the thing is they needed to be a conversation between me. I mean, I needed to ask them to clarify what exactly it was that they needed. And then I'll be able to give them like two or three options of what they could do. But because there was this agency in between like, you know, sort of cutting things off, I couldn't like have that conversation. And so that's why like I strike, I struck out and I was like on LinkedIn, like looking for direct clients. Um, and so wait, what was the question again? Um, the question is, um, I, I gave an example of the heavy text in, in. Oh yeah. So whether they should or not. Yeah. So do you have any experience where you had limit? had to increase the number of copy where you brought a product in from the, from the States? Um, no, I haven't had that yet. 
I mean, I do ask for more information sometimes mm -hmm. because sort of the translation doesn't work. Like I was doing adaptation of a company website and this was a direct client. So I was able to have the back and forth and like for them, so it was an Israeli company and they were saying, Oh, we have experience in the far East. Right. And I was like, far East is great. And so I was going from English into Japanese and I was like, far East is great in English, especially if you're in Israel. But someone reading this in Japanese is going to want to know which countries. Like, it just looks weird to just talk about the Far East. And so I asked them to, you know, tell me what the countries actually were, if they knew. And then, like, you know, I plugged in the specific countries instead of the Far East. Um, so, I mean, that kind of expands different parts of it. But there's also information that, like, it happens, I think, more... Um, when you're going from Japanese to English because the Japanese contains a lot of information that the English reader doesn't necessarily want to see. So, like, you know, they give you specific dimensions of things in Japanese often and the English reader doesn't care. So, um, you know, they just want no small, large, medium. I think, like, the European countries tend to, like, especially, scan, like, the Northern European countries tend to share that desire to want to know the exact dimensions. So, like, a care and stuff tends to give exact dimensions, right? That's very, like, Northern European. So when you adapt into, for an American audience, you kind of cut that out. I feel like I experience more of the cutting out rather than the adding on. The, when products go to America or to Japan? Hmm? You said you cut out, that means the product goes to America, you cut it out, or? Yeah. Oh, yeah. amazing. Yeah, I feel like that happens more. <laughs> why, why do you think, uh, why, this a question I want to ask, like, why do you think culturally uh, that Japanese are more in, into the details and more into the, um, the descriptions and the features? Well, is, is it, like, like, if you ask me, Things like this, uh, I will give you examples of like our Chinese history or some proverb that, that made us this way. Is there anything that you can think of? Mm -hmm. so, that's really interesting because I do think the primary difference, one of the primary characteristics of how Japanese business operate in general is that it's all in the details, right? Details are really important. It's not like Japan was always like this. It's just that from the 1950s onwards and until now, details have become the prime importance, especially when you're talking about product development. Um, and there is a proverb, um, even small dusts, if they, um, if they accumulate, they become a mountain, right? And that's a really, I mean, that really describes how Japanese businesses or the ideal Japanese businesses tend to operate. And so I know that in China, Japanese businesses tend to get criticized for being too slow on working with working on stuff. You know, they're like, yeah, Japan, you know, they create great, really high quality things, but they're so slow that it's like for Chinese companies, they're really frustrating to work with Japanese companies. They just like don't move fast enough, but that's because they want to get all the details right first. And I have this experience where I was in a meeting between an American company and a Japanese company and the American company was serving the Japanese company. And I was in, a, I was in their meetings like for six months. It was like a long-term assignment. 
And this thing kept happening where the Jap American side of the company was making presentations to the Japanese side. And they kept trying to get an okay for the big picture and go into the details and like then like hone into the details. And the Japanese side kept focusing in on like whatever details were off about the big picture thing and they just weren't giving an overall yes or no, right? And I mean, not all Japanese companies are the same, but the thing is that's a very typical traditionalist Japanese response to want to have the details right first and then talk about the big picture. And like this was happening, like, you know, of course, my being who I am, like I immediately figured out what was going on and I was just kind of like, you know, I wanted to say that to the American company, you guys need to like reverse your presentation orders. You got to start with the details, not end with, not try to end with the details because the meetings kept getting longer and longer and they kept falling behind their deadlines because they kept trying to do it their order of doing things, which was different from the Japanese. Like they were expecting a reverse order of how to proceed with, the, you know, with, with the meetings. So, I mean, that, you know, that just happens. And why, I, I don't know that there's a why for it. It's I guess it's a, it's a culture thing. I just said just now the proverb uh, plays yeah. a role in how, how the entire society looks, looks at things. Yeah. And it, I mean, there's a certain ideal not that not everyone keeps to, but when that's the ideal of a society, then it certainly dictates how the majority is going to behave and also um, what's going to be considered better than not. Right. So it also dictates reputations. So a company that has a good reputation in Japan, you can tell probably comes closer to the ideal. So that gives you clues as to how to interact with them. And you can also like make sense of the fact that say you're partnering with a certain company that doesn't seem to have a good reputation in Japan, but you feel like you're having a good experience with them and what's going on. Like, is there something that I'm missing? It might be that they don't behave according to that ideal. And that's why in Japan, they don't have a good reputation but outside of Japan. They would do just fine. Like, you know, stuff like that. And so it's not necessarily that, you're missing something or there's something shady about them, but just that they don't live up to certain social expectations. And so you could sort of like put your discomfort at ease, right? In terms of your screening process of who you want to partner with, stuff like that. That's, that's, that's amazing. That's something I learned today. That's, I, I'll, I remember the proverb and remember to tell me the Japanese proverb. So that, and so I'll, I'll, I'll memorize it later. So now I, I know when I negotiate with Japanese companies, I don't like to start with the details. I think it's, it's quite, quite important. Yeah. I mean, although like companies that have a bigger foreign presence then and have more of that influence are going more for the, let's go with the big bullet points first and then go, you know, they're trying to adapt that. So you have to know what kind of company you're dealing with. I mean, that's the difficulty is that there are multiple sort of variations on it. And there are a couple of clues that you can look at, like where they're headquartered often tells you something. And if you know the CEO's personality, that will also tell you something. Like there are a couple of things that you have to look at um, and also to sort of their international presence. And that will tell you a whole lot more about what kind of approach is going to be likely um, effective for that specific company. Yeah, Abby, you yeah. said something about uh, you would help out if um, the 
like in terms of negoti negotiating directly to a Japanese company better. Uh, what are some of the uh, tips that you give when you're negotiating with a Japanese uh, party? So what, um, so what I've done is that usually at this point, I haven't been able to participate from the beginning and I'm just hearing things retrospective or I mean, you know, I've been either sitting there and they didn't want to hear what I had to say if I was there from the beginning or like I've only heard things retrospectively and then I've been able to like give advice based on like kind of troubleshooting more um, based on what I was hearing. But, you know, it's based on your interactions. And so um, tips are you want to research the other person, like you want to research the other entity, you want to know what kind of a company it is that you're dealing with and what's their style. And Japan, I think, especially contemporary Japan is kind of a tricky place because you have on one end a very traditionalist behavior where like, you know, they're kind of like acting like a stereotypical Japanese company. And then, you know, what people think of as Japanese. And then on the other spectrum, you have these Japanese companies that are very internationalized and they're be, they behave, they emulate and behave like, um, you know, big international corporations. Um, and also the size of the company says a lot too. So you just need to have, I mean, you just need to research them really well. And this is partially important because the Japanese company does that. I mean, this is one thing about business in Japan is that unless they're like basically a very small operation, um, they're very likely to honor and do a lot of research of the other other entity that they're going to potentially partner up with right they do that and so they expect the other side to do that as well and so you just have to do a lot of probing and then i mean i guess one tip is that don't expect to walk out with a contract the first day you're negotiating with them expect to build a relationship over years first and so you kind of have to approach that. I mean, it took me, I have one company that I work with directly um, on a semi-regular basis. It took me three years to build a relationship with them until they came to a place of commissioning me anything. <laughs> That's pretty typical. Um, it's, and, and they are actually more forgiving in that I don't have to be living in Japan, seeing them like on a, you know, every couple of months, like I only see them maybe once a year or maybe twice a year at the most because um, of just sort of, um, you know, movement issues. And they still like, you know, commission me stuff. They're very, um, I don't know, forgiving of that in that sense. But that's how long it takes. Like that's pretty typical. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll so give you an example. Um, here in Southeast Asia, um, not to say anything negative, but in Southeast Asia, um, maybe not Singapore, but the rest of us uh, have a problem saying no. In Asia, <laughs> Malaysia, we will never say no to your face. Uh, we'll say, we'll keep in mind, we'll keep in touch, uh, we'll never say no, and you'll think like, you'll have a drink, we'll be your best friends, but the deal is not done yet until like, we sign anything. And we are very polite, it's not our count in, like there are certain things in Asia, uh, in Southeast Asia, like. Uh, we don't really say welcome. We'll say thank you to thank you. Right. And, we'll, like, and we have a big problem. Even when I realized this myself, like straight up rejecting people is very hard for us. 
So is is that the case in Japan when when it comes to these stuff things? So I think that's a very like European influenced self perception. Yeah. People definitely say about that as Japan as well, but to me, it's like. And Japanese people say that about themselves. But the thing is, if you know the culture world well, I feel like there's set phrases that people use, and set reactions that people make. That to anyone native to the culture, it's obvious what they're saying, right? So they don't say no in words, but it's effectively you have understood that this is unlikely to go through, right? Yeah, and it's only from the perspective of a foreigner who's not native to the culture and who doesn't understand how to read and understand the certain set phrases and attitudes that it looks like they're not saying no. Yeah, and I feel like that's true with Japan also. Like one of the famous things in Japan is that when people say, "Oh yes, we're considerate," like often um, we'll consider it. You have to put it in context, but half of the time when someone says we'll consider it. They're saying no. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, unless it's in the context of there's been like a long discussion going on already about something, and then you, and then you suggest something kind of as a condition, right? In that context, if they say let let us consider this, what they mean is let me take this back to my team. We're going to discuss it with my team, and then we'll come out with an answer to you that we've come out together. That's a different kind of let me consider it. But then, when you just like pop out some kind of proposal and say, "Hey, how would you like this?" and they say, "Let me consider it," that's often a no, <laughs> and that's just like, obvious to anyone who okay. knows, yeah, who knows Japanese and who understands like how negotiations happen. Yeah. And so it's only to a foreigner who's taking that one sentence literally translating to English, and they're just kind of like, "But they didn't say no." <laughs> And I'm just kind of like, but did you read it in context? Did you like, you know, did you plug it into the whole context there? Like, what what else was going on? That I mean, that's a pretty clear no to some people, you know. And I think that trickiness of reading things like that and understanding it is like true here too. Like, it happens to me here where like I ask someone, "Hey, can you do this for me?" And some people have a really hard time saying no. They say, "Oh yeah, sure, of course," and then they don't they don't come back to you. And some people just forget, and so you just want to remind them. But what I've learned is that by the third time you're having to remind someone to do something, they actually have no intention of following through, mm. and so you've got to drop it. Right? The third time is kind of like for me the magic number, where it's like by the third time you've reminded someone of something and they're not following through, they're just having a hard time saying no, but they're never going to follow through with it. For whatever reason, maybe like they're having a hard time saying no. Maybe they just they're just forgetting. Maybe it's not a priority for them. But whatever the reason, they're not going to follow through, and you've gotten that message. That's you know, great. Yeah, I yeah. actually learned something that yeah. In in Malaysia, if like you ask someone for a dinner party, uh, if you ask someone to go out, and they say I'll let you know, it's eighty percent that's a no. Right, right. I, yeah, I'll let you know. But for a foreign person, I'll let you know. Oh, they're hopeful, but I'll let you know. It's eighty percent, but ninety percent is a no. Right, right. <laughs> you can't get too literal about things like that. I mean, that's what cultural competency is: yeah. is understanding how to understand that. And um, oh, another a great example that people keep talking about 
So Kyoto is this, like, it's the old capital of Japan, right? It was the capital of Japan for over 10 centuries. Um, and they're very traditional. They're also, like, famous for, like, beating around the bush and not saying things exactly. But, but they have set phrases that if you know the culture well is obvious. And one of them is that if you get offered tea, like, if you're visiting someone and you get offered tea, like green tea, that's a sign that you've overstayed your welcome and you need to leave. <laughs> right. In Kyoto specifically, but this is like, this is like, you know, nationwide famous in Japan of like how indirect Kyoto people are, you know, but I mean, okay. Indirect in that literally they're not saying leave now, but it's like famous. Like everyone knows that if you're in Kyoto and you're a traditional Kyoto home and they've said, Hey, would you like some more green tea? That means, okay, you need to leave now. So the words are not direct, but the behavior is very obvious. Right? So, I mean, that kind of stuff. I mean, I think that's what cultural competency is knowing those codes. Yeah. Talking about cultural comp competency, uh, you, you say something there are cultural differences between different, regions in Japan uh, like different can you give us an example I always ask for examples like how like you marketed a product would you market a product differently for example in the cities or in the different parts of Japan mm -hmm. so the big difference is sort of the Tokyo area and the Kansai area which is where Kyoto Osaka and Kobe are all clustered in very close quarters and sort of the rest of Japan. Um, I mean, Okinawa also has its own. Let, let, okay, let me not get too detailed. Um, it depends on the product too. So like makeup, I don't think there's a big difference. You could sort of market it in very similar ways in all places. Um, I'm trying to think of um, what are the kinds of products that would sell differently. Um, well, for instance, like Osaka, which is in Western Japan, is known for its humor. And like, you know, sort of humor is very important for them. And so the TV is very different. Like the TV has more windows for humor-based stuff. And if you're selling something that's kind of a very locally bound thing, you have to like sort of bring humor into that. Um, and sort of... Uh, yeah, that and then and also the colors can be a little louder, too um, And the Tokyo I mean the sense of fashion and style is a little bit different also The Tokyo area tends to prefer like more sort of Western looking things So things that evoke like the image of you know America or Europe is like seen as very classy um, And that can be seen as like sort of, I mean, it would seem like classy in other places of Japan also, but the danger you kind of run into there is that you will look like whatever it is that you're advertising, if you emphasize too much sort of its Western elements, you might make your, you know, um, target audience feel like this is not for me, it's too high end, or like it's too sort of away from my world kind of thing, right? You'll be targeting different audiences. So you would have to think about how to position yourself well. Like if you want to appeal to the widest possible audience and you're selling something that's high end for 
like, you know, women ages like 20s to 40s kind of population in Japan, and you want to make sure that it's appealing to sort of everyone in Japan equally, what you want to do is you want to use um, a Japanese celebrity that has a certain reputation as being like sort of um, clean and high end, you know, probably in her 20s or something. That's who you want to use. You don't want to use like a foreign, like, or, you know, more, more specifically like a Caucasian model, which is what a lot of, um, a lot of advertisements in Japan use when they want to like make things seem high end. Yeah, I've seen the ads in Japan and they're using like a Caucasian girl or a Caucasian guy. I'm like, I don't understand that. This is work here in Southeast Asia, but this is how it works. I'm like, it's, and it's not like, a, it's not like they brought an ad from the States and played there. Which, no. Uh, it's a Japanese made ad and they put a Caucasian girl there. It's quite funny. Like they have like the Caucasian girl dancing. <laughs> now I understand why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it makes things look like, you know, high end. That's just their image. That's an image that kind of began and stuck from like the late 19th century. <laughs> okay, cool. That's, that's, that's great. Uh, because I, I'm into digital marketing, so I have to ask mm-hmm. you this question. Um, mm-hmm. How is the state of social media in Japan? What are their favorite platforms and what are into like, I know this uh, because I worked in advertising for a long time, uh, I worked with Japanese companies as well, that QR mm-hmm. codes that just came, became popular now in China and US were actually back in the 80s, in the, ni- in the early 90s were already in Japan. So yeah. like, what's, what's the state of digital and social media in, in Japan? Um, it's a completely different um, terrain. Mm. So I've actually been much more successful on Facebook in terms of getting any leads in for Japan. Um, I keep up my LinkedIn profile because it does give me exposure. Um, and I do hope that eventually there will be a stream of like, you know, the English speaking clientele coming in through there. But the matter of fact is I don't get a lot of leads on LinkedIn at all. Mm. Um, and most of my leads are actually coming in through Facebook and that's because the Japanese market uses LinkedIn, I mean, uses Facebook more like LinkedIn. Um, the population of people who use Facebook is a little bit different in Japan. It's older, it's more professional. Um, and this was not true in the past, but 2015 was like the turning point in 2015 suddenly Japanese people started flooding Facebook when they were like almost non-existent. And it also kind of became a quasi-professional platform. So there's another platform that's like supposed to be LinkedIn equivalent called Wantedly in Japan, but that's more like specifically just business. Just sort of, you know, social media and digital media behavior in Japan is also very different, right? So um, there's kind of like this pretense of mixing the private and the business on Facebook but that's like actually primarily a business platform. So people are very careful about what they say and don't say on that platform. Um, but LinkedIn is, I can, LinkedIn Japan is really trying hard to like make, make it happen. And I've seen like an increased number of Japanese speakers on the platform using Japanese. So I think it's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> it's definitely not a Japanese speakers platform at all. Um, and there are certain like d- 
digital spaces that are only, I mean, that have tried to like cross over here. Like, I don't know if you've heard of Line, L-I-N-E. Yes, is it big in Japan? I have Line. I have Line. Yeah, it's huge. Oh. Like, if you, you want to do digital marketing in Japan, you have to use Line. I, it's my favorite messaging app uh, because I travel to Thailand a lot. It's the number one messaging app in Thailand. And I believe so. It's also in Korea. And now I just found out it's in Japan as well. So it's like the Asian WhatsApp, but with chips and moving characters and right. a lot of crazy stuff. And Taylor Swift is in there. So it's very it's very interesting messaging platform. It's very different from WhatsApp. WhatsApp is very boring compared to Line. Yeah, I think they don't use as much visual stuff. I mean, another thing that I notice is that um, Americans are very bad at reading visual cues, like, you know, pictures. They don't, there's not a wide consensus about how to understand like visual cues. And they're generally not very good at reading and understanding it compared to like, I feel like the general Asian audience. And I feel like that has a lot to do with like, in Japan, like manga and anime is, you know, a huge thing and everyone grows up with it. So there are certain visual codes that everyone learns growing up. And so that kind of enriches like the visual, you know, field even more. So I mean, I think there's partially that too. Um, but yeah, and I think, yeah. But also there's like, a, in Japan, there's like a clear separation between the public and the private, right? So the public will, um, so in the public realm, no one would ever use emoji. Like that would like, unless you're like in a specifically creative space, if you use emoji ever. Emoji is a Japanese word? Yes, it is. Oh, I just learned that. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it means picture letters. Oh, okay. I, I just found out it's a Japanese word. Yeah, picture alphabet, picture letters. So yeah, it, it, it would, like no one would dream of using it because it would like basically end your professional career. Yeah. But they use it all over the place when they're corresponding with friends in private, right? Or like colleagues who are like switching into private. It's like a way to signal that you become like private friends, like out of the workspace. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I, I, I'll, I'll use line when, when I get to Japan. Since amazing. I have line all, uh, on for all my Thai friends. Um, but this, this sort of, um, the next question that I'm going to ask is sort of more of a personal question. Um, I don't know if you're next to Japan or not, but uh, being an Asian, I'm, I'm ethnic Chinese, but living in Southeast Asia. So what I learned uh, uh, about the Chinese culture is that, uh, unlike the Western culture, is that in terms of our values as uh, Asian uh, values is that we are, we have our identity very much tied up to uh, a job. So if, you, if I told my grandmother that I don't really have a job, I'm a freelancer, she blows her mind. She asks me <laughs> every day, if I'm, why don't I have a uniform to go to work and, and things like that. So um, it's, uh, even most of the cultures here in Asia, the, your identity is tied to your job. Like when you say hi to someone, they'll ask immediately, what's your job? And that sort of, What's your contribution to society? So mm -hmm. is, is that the case as well in Japan? Definitely. Exactly the same. I mean, I think, I think that might be partially a Confucian thing. Yeah. Confucian? So, mm -hmm. Confucian? Oh, okay. Confucian. Yeah, yeah. like um, Confucius. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's kind of partially where it comes from. Yeah. You know, it's kind of people get defined by the world they play in society, right? Yeah. And that's very important. And I, I mean, there are really good things about that too, but there are also, you know, obviously there are pros and cons to everything. Um, but that worldview definitely exists. And in Japan, it definitely it's definitely there. The younger generation, though, people like in their, you know, what would be roughly corresponding to the millennials, like the mid 30s and younger, um, are changing a lot in terms of that, especially in the Tokyo area. And there's like this, um, so there, there's like a big regional difference because the Tokyo area is kind of cutting edge in terms of how cultural changes happen. Um, and also urban areas in general, even if not just Tokyo. But one of the things is that there's definitely an emphasis and caring a lot about people's, their own private lives and like a refusal to sacrifice themselves for work. And so that generation has been very quick to leave jobs um, if the company is mistreating them and to also point it out when they're mistreating them. I think that has to do with use of social media too. Um, but, and, and there's, you know, the, the culture I find of that generation is just very different. I, I feel like, you know, I feel like a zillennial, a zennial, like, right? Um, in terms of I'm really at the end, you know, part of the more traditional perspective on society and life. And, but like people who are just a few years younger than me, you know, we're on the cusp. So people just a few years younger than me and then younger just have a almost a completely different worldview. But because I'm on the cusp, I have friends who kind of share that worldview too, right? Even if they might be the same age as me because things are not so neat. So um, I think that's changing. And I think it's changing and it's kind of regressing at the same time. So it's kind of more of a mix. It's going to be harder to define generally and broadly. Yeah. I, I see this as more of the rise of the... Uh, value of the individual uh, against the big corporations. Like uh, I, I, I'm also on the fringes. I'm, a, I'm actually in my 30s, so uh, I understand the view of the baby boomers because that's my boss, and he always he, the way he says is like he expects people to work very hard to until like 10, 11 before like he really appreciates the person and gives a promotion. Like so, that's like his expectations. And then the millennials that come in, they're like. Um, what about my promotion? What about my rights? What about uh, I need I need to be part of a culture and enjoy my work first before like I I I would they they are not there to sell their soul to you. So, so <laughs> it's a big clash that you'll see happening more in all the all in everywhere in the world. But it's just definite uh, generation gap. Yeah, yeah. I mean. And I think a lot of it also has to do with like jobs are so much less stable now, right? So, you know, it used to be more that you, uh, you got employed, you became an employee, you were expected to stay at least a decade or two, if not for the rest of your life. And so things are much more stable, right? So it's kind of like being employed was like becoming a part of a family, really. And so you could like have this, you know, build up and you could give as much as you can because you knew there was going to be some compensation somewhere along the way. But now that that's not, you know, that's not how employment happens anymore. 
like a lot of people get fired or they move or something that it's like the relationship in a lot of ways is a lot more egalitarian and that there has to be equal exchange and that equal exchange has to be obvious from the beginning. Right. Otherwise, and the younger generation has grown up seeing that as their reality. So they're not going to wait to see the eventual exchange because their life experience teaches them that this relationship can end tomorrow. And so I need to see what the value exchange is right now. Otherwise it's probably going to be an unfair exchange. Yeah, <laughs> I can really I, identify with that. Yeah. Yeah. I totally get that because the economy has changed so much. So like mm -hmm. the company uh, financial situation keep changing. And uh, I find that millennials, they really like to work at startups instead because that's where they learn all their skills and they will be there for one to three years. They will learn all their skills, get all the experience and you can get out and get another job. So they like the startup fast paced experience and the remote working environment and all, all the, all the, it's more agile where, you know, something you say can get to the boss and they like, they like that sort of environment. And I, I too sometimes prefer that sort of environment. So yeah, that's, that's interesting. So Abby, have you done any work where you um, took, uh, you marketed something to Korea because you also equally have uh, great knowledge in Korea? No, I haven't worked at all with the Korean scene. Okay. Um, yeah, just because I've concentrated, you know, with Japan, like I have a very stable footing. Yeah. So that's where I've concentrated at this point. I think Korea is going to be somewhere where I expand to in the future after the Japanese part is like solid. <laughs> yeah. But um, as, a, as an expert in Korean culture, what, this is just uh, for, for my own knowledge, uh, what's, what's the big differences between the Korean and Japanese culture? There's a huge, um, well, it seems like a huge difference to me. Um, the aesthetics are quite different. Um, the social structure is quite different. And so those come out in different ways. One of the things about Korea is that um, structurally, social structurally, it doesn't have a very strong social security system. So the, um, so the gap between the rich and the poor is huge. And that's growing in Japan too, but it, um, it's coming from a place of having been less so. So that's, um, um, Korea is a much more class conscious society. And so the market segmentation, I think, tends to be more, um, um, more even more important. Like it's very difficult to target um, a certain segment of people without defining it also in terms of like you might not define in terms of class, but things that signify class, like college graduate or not, you know, things like that. Yeah. Um, and also, also Korea is a much more politically active place. And like political activism is a huge part of its culture. And Japan is almost opposite of that. Mm. So like, you know, one of the things, one of the big differences between like posts on Facebook that you see between Japanese and Koreans, like living in those places, is that the Koreans tend to be a lot more vocal about political situations that are going on. And Japanese posters will, except for the very few who are into politics, and then they get branded as people who are into politics, they, will, they won't post anything, anything 
about politics, like no matter what's going on, right? Like they only post like photos of food that they're eating, you know, photos of views of a place that they were at, you know, like these things that can be posted at any time, anywhere, like really evergreen stuff, unless it's like seasonally tied, <laughs> you know? And so that's, that's a stark difference. And so, um, and then also the color scheme preferences are different too. Korean um, color schemes tend to be much um, brighter than Japanese ones. And there's traditionally there are different color schemes that um, prevailed. So that, um, that also changes things a little bit. Um, yeah. Preferences of things are different, right? And marketing is all about preferences. So <laughs> yeah. what I think you said about class is absolutely true. One of the viral um, advertisements that I saw, one of the viral videos I saw uh, was an ad that came from Korea, which uh, greatly, um, uh, greatly showed how the young people have a difficulty finding jobs in Korea. And it was a great emotional ad. And mm. I think that really identifies with the youth in Korea. Um, so that what you said about class is absolutely um, true right, when it comes to Korea. And uh, I find that Korea is also more westernized uh, compared. Mm -hmm. they, they, they adopt more Western uh, values or like more Western culture. Mm -hmm better than Japan, I, I suppose. But yeah, it's pretty cool. Well, I think like they're, they're more like compared to Japan, Korea is more emotive. Like it's more, or it's not that they're more emotive. It's that it's considered to be okay socially to speak more loudly and to speak out more. And I think that's tied to its political active um, activism culture too. Like, you know, that has a very specific history of, I mean, a lot of Korea's political activism has its, um, you know, origins in early 20th century Japan's colonization of Korea. Yeah. Um, and also it's just had a, like, a very tumultuous, like, early 20th century history. Mm -hmm. But it's become solidly a part of, like, South Korean culture to be politically active. And so I think that sort of combined with already certain cultural tendencies, like, you know, being outspoken is okay. And in Japan, it's really not. Like, conformity... I mean, they both are conformist societies, but it, they come out in very different ways, I feel like. Yeah. And yeah, I don't, I don't know if I'll call it, but it's easier if you're already more outspoken, it's easier to adapt into what presents as more westernized, I guess. Yeah. I'm not sure that I agree that I it's more westernized, but yeah. I think it's more, um, in a way to put it, um, a more progressive society, mm. uh, in terms of politically pro progressive. Um, yeah. When it comes to Japan, it's more, in a way, conservative, like it's more... Politically? Yeah, so they, they don't, um, I think they don't really speak out against the government and country, and they love the country inside of Yeah. Yeah, the citizens have much more power and much more empowered than Korea. That's true. That's what you mean, right? Yeah. Mm. It's much more democratic. Yeah. Because but that's because that's because it was under like, you know, decades of military dictatorship. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a reaction to that. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that's yeah, that's awesome. I kind of wish that Japan were like that too. It's really yeah, kind of stifling in that sense. Yeah. 
just just a personal question because you you lived in Japan and and North America, of course. What's the difference between living in this these two two worlds? What North America and Japan? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't know where to start. <laughs> and anything funny or anything that. Uh, um, I mean, also the thing is, North America is so different depending on where you go. Like, yeah, even in the United States alone. Tough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the South feels like Japan, yeah. but just a Christian version of like rural Japan. <laughs> really, like the South felt like rural Japan, but Christian. Yeah. <laughs> Which was, and then um, the coasts are very different. But also similar. Mm. Um, the big urban centers, I think, is what people think of when they say America. Yeah. The big urban central, you know. And so, what's the difference? I mean, New York is a lot like Japan because they have so little space, mm. and so you see a lot of the same furniture being sold in New York and in Japan, right? Furniture they don't see anywhere else in America, <laughs> because like there are these things that fold up and like fit into like these small spaces. Yeah. And other places in America, they don't have a need for those things. So they're simply not sold. Right. So, I mean, I walked into once a friend's house in New York when I was living there and saw the same table and chair set that I grew up with in Japan. <laughs> it was one of these things that fold up and like you could put the chairs in the middle of the table. And so it becomes like this flat thing that you could just like put into a corner and like, I just couldn't imagine that being sold anywhere else. Okay, so Japan in the States, one of the big differences, people eat a whole lot more. The servings in the US are much larger. Yeah. They're I like three that. times the size. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little crazy. Yeah, I, I love I loved, uh, like authentic, authentic Japanese food, like with all the, the everything like that's fresh and it's, and it's all in small portions, so uh, yeah. it's more, much more healthy. Um, yeah. okay, moving on to uh, the things that you do uh, in the States, uh, you're one of the founders of LinkedIn Local in San Diego. So tell us how you got started to start LinkedIn Local. Okay, so um, this is what happened. I used to do online um, community organizing in, in Japan for um, anyone who's like who would be considered a cultural minority in Japan and the way it happened was that so in Japan you meet in the digital space and if you don't meet offline it's like not really a community like no one would consider that a community right um, and so I was pretty early in that in terms of um, you know I had a space online and I would put on they would call them offline meetings in Japan for anyone who identified as being a minority and so that was sort of my model of like online meetings is that it's all about taking it offline and so when I was starting to meet people on LinkedIn and I thought oh you know this is interesting I started like I, I decided that I wanted to meet people locally because you know business you do face-to-face -face and if you can meet someone you know if you can meet them face-to-face -face, like in person that's definitely better so um, I wanted to organize an offline meeting like I'd been doing like 10 years earlier, right? Or 20 years earlier. And so I wanted to do that. And then right around and, but, um, 
you know, you don't do things like that alone. Like it's much easier to have collaborators. So I was like looking for collaborators, but then um, time was passing by. And then before I knew it, there was a, there was, you know, hashtag LinkedIn local going on for offline meetings for LinkedIn. And I was like, Oh, perfect. You know, if someone has already started it and they named it and they're branding it, if I use the same branding, like it would definitely amplify it and I'll get more people to come. Um, and it will be more fruitful for everyone because the whole point of this is to meet other people and to make the online connections offline. So the timing was really right for me. And so that's how I got involved in it. Um, and, and then, yeah, like I just, you know, find good, found good collaborators to put it on. And that's how I got involved in it. Amazing. That's uh, because of your collaborators. I think like uh, Brian Schulman and I, who's the other collaborator? Like, Rocio. Rocio Osuna. Yeah. So uh, that's why um, even here in Asia, we, the most popular LinkedIn local that we see on LinkedIn because of our connection stuff, it's LinkedIn local San Diego. I, I don't see like LinkedIn local New York or anything, but the, the most <laughs> one that I've seen is San Diego because of also uh, like you had a string who visited and she is from Australia and from Vietnam and she uh, she like that sort of brought attention to um, to to LinkedIn local San Diego so it became sort of like an international thing and I'm like I'm like I wish I was going there yeah. yeah, you know who's really good about amplifying that message? So I tend to do like more of the on-ground organizational stuff, but I'm not very good about, and I'll do the marketing before, but I'm not very good about amplifying the message like on the platform. And you know who's really good with that is Brian Schulman. Yeah. Like he will make a number of videos, you know, in terms of marketing and also before it happens, after it happens. And so like he really amplifies the effects of having putting it on. Yeah. He's really good about that. So I think, yeah, I think it's kind of really in that sense, like collaborative in terms of, um, you know, we draw from each of our strengths. <laughs> yeah. Amazing stuff. Any, um, so any, any examples of things that you got out of organizing LinkedIn um, local? Um, strengthening ties, you know, I really do think when you're able to take online connections offline, um, there's a lot of criticism of online communication and um, online like social media because I think people tend to see it as replacing offline communication. But I feel very much like, you know, online communication only enhances offline stuff if you make sure that you translate it into, you know, the offline meeting too. So. I really enjoy it. Also, I mean, one of the things is that there are a lot of people in cities where you just don't meet them because you don't cross over in any kind of way, right? Yeah. This whole platform kind of flattens out all the differences, like geographical differences, professional, you know, industry differences, stuff like that. So you know how like numbers have a way of flattening things out? Yeah. Where it's not like a cup, it's not like a mug at a glass and, you know, it's just like you have five cups. Yeah. You know, and in the same way, I think the digital platform has a way of flattening out those differences. Yeah. And so you just become like this profile picture instead of like, you know, someone who goes to the market at 8 p.m. and someone who goes there at 6 a.m. You know, like those differences kind of disappear. 
And so taking that offline has like this really interesting diversifying effect. So you meet people online, someone who you would probably never meet in real life. Yeah. So then you take that offline and it like expands your world like exponentially. Yeah. Because you've made, you know, your digitized self online and then you take it offline again and you become like this three dimensional person again. And, but you're three dimensional people who would have never mixed otherwise, but because you kind of have that feedback. Effect. So, you know, LinkedIn local in that sense, like has a very specific way of doing that. And I really enjoy that sort of diversifying effect. Amazing. I, I really love uh, what um, the LinkedIn community is doing around the world. That's, that's why I also started the show. So I can't imagine like because of LinkedIn, I've never met you. We are on opposite ends of the world. I know. Like, literally like 12 hours apart and like we're having this show. Um, and I've talked to people from Israel, from Europe, uh, and uh, from different parts of Asia through, through LinkedIn. And like we sort of met in person, even though we ne never really met. So mm -hmm. like even, like I just told you, uh, I've met Roger Wilkinson, like you made a connection mm -hmm. different through LinkedIn, but I, I, I myself have met it in real life. So it's very, very interesting. So even for myself, um, anyone from LinkedIn swimming, swimming by Kuala Lumpur, I will actually take the time to meet them as well to sort of like um, exchange ideas. And I, I'm a person who will help them out if they need any help when it comes to digital marketing. And, uh, it's been a very good community LinkedIn has been. So yeah, look, look forward to, uh, if, I, if I ever visit uh, the States, I will go to any of this LinkedIn, uh, LinkedIn locals. Yeah, I think yeah. that'd be great. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, but um, yeah. So LinkedIn local, I know I never want to talk about it again. I'm sort of, I'm sort of lost now. But anyway, um, you're, you're now you're based in the other, the, the other coast, which is uh, yeah. going to be based in Portland in a, in a way. Yeah. So are you going to start a LinkedIn local in, soon in Portland? Um, I would like to, but I really feel like, you know, it is an in-person thing is much more bound by its local culture and local population. And so, you know, as an outsider coming to Portland, Maine for the first time, I feel like I do need to get to know people and sort of how people function there better before I start organizing. So I'll do that, like the groundwork of kind of observing and understanding and figure out like what the best way would be to organize something like that in, in that space. And then, yeah, probably, I mean, my projection is that it'll probably take about six months until doing the first one if everything goes well. Yeah. I think you have to make some real connections on LinkedIn and on, yeah. on, online and then like, make, like get followers with the various venues in town and uh, then you get to, mm -hmm. uh, I remember what I want to ask you. So you told me that yeah. you went to VidCon and uh, what was the experience like for you going to VidCon? Uh, yeah, so it was kind of spiritually nourishing because I haven't been in such a youthful creator space in a really long time and I had forgotten the politics of that place. And, you know, the business world can feel very conservative because there's so much at stake. And so people tend to become very cautious about what this, they disclose and what they say and they don't say. But VidCon is for a much younger audience in general and also a creator space. And so people tend to be a lot more um, 
vocal in terms of advocating for minority rights. And, um, and there was a lot of concern in the panels, at least, I mean, not necessarily in what they talked about, but in terms of the titles of the panels of how to use this entertainment platform for education and for social justice. And so it was very, and like, I would say, I mean, to me, it looked like half of the panels were talking about that. And it was very encouraging to me to see like such a wide range of advocacy going on and being tied into this, you know, entertainment platform. It's not, it's not entertainment for business. It's really um, a community oriented entertainment. So they, and a lot of the creators come out from a place of never making a revenue, right? So it's not really a business venture. There's a very strong strain of non-business oriented creation going on. And so that fuels this advocacy kind of um, atmosphere. And it was very kind of reassuring and refreshing to be in a space like that, where that's like sort of the primary rhetoric. And, you know, it's celebrated. So that's, it, it was very refreshing in that sense. And it was kind of like a nice way to say goodbye to Southern California. <laughs> I, I see that as uh, a sign of uh, democrat democratization of media, because mm -hmm. in the past, where anything that goes on TV or magazines or radio, um, the big corporations had the choice of who, which race or which who were represented on the media. But now right. that it's democratized, you know, um, like all everyone has the equal fair chance to create content. So that's why that's that's an emphasis, I think. Uh, when it comes to these type of consensus. So yeah, yeah, I, agree. yeah I, I would like to see uh, more uh, because you're, you're also a creator on, on LinkedIn. So I would actually like to see more Asians um, create videos on LinkedIn. It's not a lot. It's, there are a few of us, but um, for yeah. me, I, I discussed this with Roger. I said, uh, and he agrees with me as well that it's very hard for an Asian person to pick up the camera and talk to it because we are a very conforming society and we don't uh, really want to stand out. And if you stand out, uh, most of the time you'll be uh, looked at um, and got sh get shut down. So that's, that's, that's the general consensus. No one really wants to stand out. And I'm also not really comfortable of putting my LinkedIn videos on Facebook anyway, so that I don't want my friends to see them, but on LinkedIn, everyone who sees it are from the West or from different parts of the world, so it's still fine. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the cultural difference. So there are not many Asian creators yet uh, in, in Southeast Asia, but there are, of course, more, lots more in the West. Uh, so any thoughts on, on this? Oh, definitely. Like, um, so I just did at VidCon, so I was hanging a string a little bit and I did a video of her where I was doing a Japanese style, right? And she doesn't look 100% comfortable because it was like done Japanese style, which is a style where like, I'm not in the screen at all. Even though I'm interviewing her, I'm behind the camera and I'm interviewing her from behind the camera and the camera's just on her, right? And they're like... And um, I'll upload it soon. It's only like two and a half minutes um, because, you know, my thing is about keeping everything short. Yeah. But, you know, I kind of did that on purpose and I've tried this in the past, although I wasn't explicit that I was doing a Japanese style. So people, I think, just thought this is very different and like didn't really, you know, realize what I was doing. But the Japanese style of creation 
for business purposes and otherwise is just very different in that they try to make the um, they try to make the person who's taking the camera disappear and become the camera's eye, right? So like one of the one of the very common ways of doing documentary films is, and this is a big contrast, they will film the pathway that someone is following with like their sound of like breathing and stuff. So you feel like you're walking along yourself. But I noticed that with American and Western things, they film the person walking towards the camera, right? In yeah, like yeah. a documentary style. Yeah. So there's this preference for having a person in there. And so that's why you have this thing of people talking into the camera, which like is a very uncomfortable thing for a Japanese person. And you're saying like for Asians in general, like it's like you don't want the camera on you. You want the camera on the thing that you're looking at, right? Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. want to be the camera's eye. And so, and that's why you, you know, so like the few people who are posting regularly on LinkedIn in Japanese, the only things you see is like photographs of food and, you know, also very general, you know, comments about what day this is like nothing about their personal lives or even professional lives. And um, even the LinkedIn Japan team, like doesn't film themselves like square on. Like there's one person from the LinkedIn Japan team who's posting stuff semi-regularly. She will do an interview and she might take one photo of herself with the person who she's interviewing, but like rarely, mostly she doesn't show up in her own posts, right? And that's just a style and I agree, I want to see a lot more Asian content creators online, um, on LinkedIn. But I think for that, there has to be an acceptance of the style where like, you're not going to be seeing the person who's behind the camera all the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I get that too. I, 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 have, I have the urge to not be in the camera most of the time. I wanted to like take, take, take a video of a scenery and just talk to the scenery. And yep. I thought... That is really, I've not seen anything on this, like of this, like LinkedIn. I didn't, but I've done it, uh, I think once, but it was different. For me as well, personally, uh, it was very hard to do my first LinkedIn video. Very hard to talk to the camera, and I uh, just uh, took a lot of guts to do it. And, I, and once I did it, I got so much encouragement that, uh, and I had so much re uh, good results that I kept. Uh, doing it because uh, I wanted to be uh, part of uh, my personal brand and I really enjoy connecting with people on LinkedIn. So yeah, that's, mm -hmm. that's why I do it. But it's, I, I'm like the most, uh, a lot of people from the West say that I'm like the most charismatic person here in Southeast Asia, like the most funny one. But, uh, but it's, it's not easy. It's not easy for most of the people here in Asia. It's really not, it's really yeah. hard to get in front of a camera, especially if, like it's fine if someone is doing a show, like shooting you, Right. it's fine, but you yourself holding up your phone, it's not fine at all. And I find it's very difficult, like one of the big adjustments that I had to make, just across the board, in talking about myself and what I do in English, is that I always have to make myself and myself alone, the hero of whatever narrative I'm talking about, right? Like, I'm not supposed to, like, I can't talk about it, we, 
and talk about the collective that we did things together and we accomplished this together. Like you say that stuff and it's seen as weak. Like it's seen as you either that you don't take enough credit for yourself or that you actually haven't done anything. (laughs) And so um, that's also, that's been very difficult for me throughout. And it especially hurt me a lot in job interviews because I like to talk about what other people, you know, um, I mean, it's just a different way of talking like in Japan. And I think this is true in Asia in general, the person who gets admired is not the person who toots their horn all the time talking about what I did and what, you know, I did then and what I did now. Like it's not about the I, it's about how much can you, you know, really pull up the people around you. So the person, a true leader tries to disappear and tries to push up the people around them, right? Because a leader is someone who has good people around you. Yeah. So if you are in the center, you don't have to tell people what you've done. If there are people around you who are doing all these great things, by inference, you're probably also great. But here, if you're going to be a leader, and if you're going to, if you want, if you sort of want to be, um, like you want to be legitimate, you have to tell people at every turn the great things that you did. And that sometimes means that even when you do something with other people, you don't, from an Asian perspective, you're not giving them enough credit. Like from my perspective, if I don't credit someone, like, like enumerate everything that someone did and talk about exactly how they contributed, that's not crediting them enough. Just saying, oh, they're a great help. Like to me, it's like not enough. But like in the West, if you give too much credit to other people, you're like considered to be like weak. <laughs> and that's, that's very difficult. That's very difficult for me. And it kind of like goes into the same content creation thing. I mean, Quentin is a little bit unusual in that he credits people like when he has a film or like he films something and someone else took a picture of him, someone else did the filming for him, he always credits that other person. Like he tags them and credits them. But a lot of people on LinkedIn don't. Like they will use someone else's music, they will, you know, they'll have someone else film something and they won't tell you who did that, right? And that's considered to be okay. So, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I get what you mean. So. Uh... In here, Asia is getting more westernized, but we, in school, I'm very used to say, like, we, we did this project together, but in, if it's a westernized interview, they say, so what exactly do you do? So I'm like, it's very hard, like, the whole team got together and we, we did this. <laughs> and uh, it's, here it's more, we look up to the silent leader, so I, I call it a silent leader that gets things done, and it's not yeah. a lot of times like the, uh, the the leaders that we look up to here in Asia are not vocal. They don't say they they're not like American politicians. <laughs> they don't yes. say they're good at this. They, if you if like like when you ask an Asian person, you ask an Asian person, how's business? They will. It's like false humility. They will say, uh, yeah, oh, it's, it's doing okay. It's, it's, it's good. But actually, it's doing amazing. But we <laughs> don't boast. If you boast, that means you're doing very badly. Like anyone who stands out or who talks about himself, we, we view it as an insecurity. We view yes. it as someone who has no uh, self-esteem. Whereas like, uh, a lot of rich people, especially here in Asia, they dress very modestly and they... 
uh, they don't slot it, don't slot anything, is because that's that's a value that you see. Uh, it's sort of like a, a modest value. So where you flaunt stuff, that means you're not really that rich. So that's I don't know if that's the case in Japan. But it's no, here it in is. Asia. I mean, that's one of the reasons why subtleties are important, right? Because your class is shown not by the bling that you wear, but by how good a quality clothes you can afford, right? So you, to be able to tell who has more money than others, you don't look at like what it is that they're, I mean, what you have to notice is the quality of like the cloth of the clothes that they're wearing. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. so the difference are, differences are in those subtleties and that exists, I think, I think that's like an East Coast and the States and also a West um, European value as well, where like you show your richness not by wearing gold, but by wearing high-end cloth made clothes kind of thing. Yeah. I think that's very, yeah. I mean, I think that's also generally an older culture value, you yeah. know, where, yeah, it's shown in the subtleties. Yeah, yeah. Yeah it's, yeah, it's very hard to, to do LinkedIn videos because you, it's very hard for an Asian person to talk about yourself. It's just, it's just very hard. I, I, don't, I don't know how to explain it. Very hard <laughs> I, to say nice I things about agree. yourself and very hard, to, very hard to say nice things about yourself and very hard to um, talk about yourself. But it's very good. It's very easy. It's quite it's easier to give encouragement and to give tips, uh, but you wouldn't say, "Oh, I'm awesome." You would say that. <laughs> All right. I yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. All right. It's nice uh, talking to you, Abby. It's really, it's really, really good chat, and um, I really love the the topic of culture. And uh, I believe in the future I will take up some sort of education in culture because that's that's what I really uh, love. I love diversity, culture, and things like that, and especially when it relates to uh, marketing. And uh, really, thank you for taking the time to uh, do this with me, and uh, we will connect more on LinkedIn. So thank you very yeah. much, Abby. Thank you. Thank you.